Hey everyone and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime where we get big mad over true crime. Today we bring our case against Chris Watts to rest. And I remember when we were just talking about covering this case and now we're finishing it and my mind is exploding. Last week I asked anyone who wanted to to send me their theories about what they think happened the day Chris Watts killed his family and you guys did not disappoint. Small talk is worthless so let's get to analyzing. first theory we have comes from Shelby. Shelby says, I think Kessinger played a huge part and talked him into getting rid of his old life to be with her. I think she fed him every single one of his ideas that he acted out, kind of like the one girl who talked her boyfriend into committing suicide via text. She's talking about the Conrad Roy case out in Massachusetts. But I also think Chris is a lunatic, and I think this was all planned out way ahead of time. My take on that? I think you're dead on about this being planned out ahead of time. The most consistent lie in this case has always been the timeline of Chris and Kessinger's relationship. They claim to have started dating on June 8th of 2018, but have no answer as to why Kessinger was Googling Shanann's name all the way back in September of 2017. Granted, it's also a question that was never asked, which still blows my mind. Chris made sure to hop on the opportunity to go to the field first thing Monday morning when he overheard some coworkers talking about a leak the Friday before. Chris usually hit the office first thing in the morning, but not the morning of the 13th. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again, there are no coincidences when it comes to crime. I don't know if I believe that Kessinger came up with the ideas of how to kill the girls in Shanann. She was bananas for sure, but I don't think she was as sadistic as Chris. If anything like this was true, I think maybe it happened in a sense of, did you hear about the case where the mom blah 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 or the dad blah blah blah? Planting the seed, but not necessarily making the direct suggestion. Next up, we have Stacy, and Stacy says, I think Chris planned to kill them ahead of time, but he did such a horrible job with the crime scene that he's either an idiot or he just didn't care. He would have been better off killing them and leaving them at the house and then staging a break-in. And I have to say I'm comforted in knowing that there are other weird people out there who sit in front of their TV and yell at the criminals about how stupid they are when they leave prints or walk through blood. Some people yell at football players, some yell at serial killers. Anyways, back to Stacy's theory. I think he killed Shanann first and left the girls alive until he got to the oil site because three bodies are hard to hide if you get pulled over. I don't think he put Shanann in the back seat under the girl's feet. I think he shoved her in the bed of the truck and then drove to the site. I believe more of his second confession than the third. I do believe they had sex because she wanted to prove to herself that Chris still loved her. Maybe he was scared to kill her at first, but then when they had that big fight, he just lost it. He was way too calm after the murder for it to be an act of rage, though, so who really knows? I know so many women who started looking at their husbands different after this. My take on this... I think you're right that he killed Shanann first and obviously the girls were alive when they left the house because you see their shadows on the video footage from Nathan, the neighbor. I also think you're right that Shanann was never in the backseat. It was an hour drive to that oil site. If he so much as had a brake light out or forgot to make a complete stop at a stop sign, police would have seen a dead woman rode up in the back of his truck. 
He backed into the garage for a reason, and he only made it about an eighth of the way in because the Lexus was still parked in there. If he wasn't trying to conceal what he was putting in the back of the truck, why would he even bother entering the garage at all? While it was dark when he first backed the truck in the garage, the sun had pretty much risen by the time he had driven out of the driveway. No way in hell he would risk his neighbors driving by, seeing him struggling with a people-shaped package wrapped in a sheet with garbage bags on either end. And note that he never went to the other side of the truck. Shanann was dead, and putting her into the small back floorboard of that truck would have been hard. He would have had to pull hard after getting her in there to get her feet on one end of the floorboard and her head on the other, and we honestly just don't see this happen. I think he callously shoved her into the back of his truck with his tools, put his scared little girls into the back seat, and drove off to the site where he intended to kill them. And about the husband thing, trust me, even my own started to second-guess himself in a non-murderous way, of course. There's a picture of Chris Watts doing a push-up with his kids on his back, and we have almost one identical to it with my husband and our two youngest on his back, and to this day, it gives him the heebie-jeebies. Our next theory comes from Megan, and Megan says, I think I've been too naive thinking he just snapped. The murders were acted out so poorly, like the disposal of the bodies at his fucking work. Why? Why would you do that? And if you didn't want to get caught, you don't dispose the bodies of your dead family at your job site. I mean, is he the dumbest killer in the history of all killers or what? It makes no sense. My take on this, I think the only argument for him snapping is how shitty of a job he did, but frankly, most people aren't good at this kind of thing. But ultimately, I think you're right. Like everyone else seems to agree with, I don't think this was a snap decision. I think this was a plan. Remember early on in the case when Shanann's mom called the detective in the middle of the night and told him that she was worried Chris was going to dispose of the girls' bodies by pouring oil on them. This is clearly a conversation they had before, and it had to have been a pretty in-depth one. You don't just go around saying, you know, I work with crude oil and it can get rid of a body real quick. The tanks he worked on were cleaned weekly, so he knew that in a week, someone would be looking inside of them. I think he put the girls in there because he thought they were so small that they would decompose by then. I think he buried Shanann because he didn't really have another option. She couldn't fit down the same hatch that the girls did, and his truck's GPS was basically his alibi. So whatever he did to dispose of her, he couldn't drive there from where he had parked his truck. So instead, he walked 100 feet away, dug a shitty hole, thinking no one was going to walk out there because why would they? These were big fields, and when they were there working on them, they stayed near the tanks. I think Chris's undoing was himself. He was a terrible liar, and he talked way too much. Those two combined, and a failed polygraph later, he was fucked, and they were either going to find his family on their own, or he was going to tell them where they were. And if he told them where they were, he could pick the narrative as to how they got there and why, which is why he went with the original, Shanann killed the girls and I killed her. I think the snapped thing is something that a lot of people wrestle with. 
Our next theory comes from Alyssa, who says, I think Kessinger helped him plan this all out. We know she wasn't there at the house because the neighbor's security camera doesn't show her, but what if she met him at his work site and helped him there? It also bothers me that he never really talks about her in detail, but when he does, almost seems to defend her. I think she was involved with the planning and burying of the girls in Shenan, but I don't think Chris will ever admit it. And who's threatening her? Why would they put her in witness protection unless there were threats against her? Or do they have her in witness protection to keep track of her? Maybe they know she's involved and they just can't prove it. My response to this is, I think we can safely say that while Chris and Kessinger were in frequent communication on the 13th, she didn't have any physical involvement in what Chris did. She was definitely at work and her alibi of being there checked out. As far as protecting Kessinger, I think this is something he's going to do until the day he dies. If he hasn't thrown her under the bus yet, I can't think of a situation that's going to change his mind. But his need to protect her almost makes her look more guilty than anything. There's no need to protect someone from something they had nothing to do with. The truth is simple and it proves itself. And when it comes to witness protection, while it's been reported, it can't really be confirmed. So it's either true or it's not. And whoever told Radar Online that she was, was either telling the truth or was being dramatic about her changing her name and moving away. I don't think anyone would put her in witness protection to keep an eye on her because it would just be unnecessary. The part that bothers me the most about her is the questions they didn't ask. It's almost like they got Chris to admit to doing what he did and that was enough for them and they let the rest go. No one asked why their emails didn't make sense or match up with the timeline of what they reported of their relationship or why the timeline they came up with doesn't match their own internet histories. Why wasn't she forced to explain why she had searched Shanann's phone almost a year before her death? Why wasn't she forced to explain where all the texts and calls between Chris went? Because when she said she deleted them when she got mad, she didn't do a complete dump job on her phone. She picked and chose what she wanted gone, which is why we have random text here and there to go on. My guess? Because it didn't matter. The actual murderer is in jail for the rest of his natural life, so why bother chasing down his mistress and try to build a prosecutable case against her? Frankly, in the name of justice of Shanann, Celeste, Bella, and Nico, I want to see it done, but I also didn't work on this case and watch it unfold live like these other authorities did. Maybe they just needed it to be over. I know that a lot of the people who did work on this case still struggle with what they saw today. Our last theory comes from Lindsay, who says, I think Kessinger was behind it. I think she slowly manipulated him to get him to do what she wanted. I'm not saying she suggested that he kill his family, but honestly, we'll never really know with all of those deleted texts. I think Chris was never really a guy that women wanted, and when he had Nicole chasing him, he got addicted to that rush and was ready and willing to do whatever she wanted. Here I come. I think it's safe to say that we all think Kessinger had some form of involvement in what happened. We've seen people thinking it's just suggestions to full-blown, hands-on, wondering if she helped him dispose of his family's bodies. But the bottom line is that everyone seems to agree Kessinger isn't faultless here. And I agree with the fact that you don't think she was just like, hey, ever thought about murdering your entire family and starting over with me? But something happened and I think she knew it was coming. Chris started losing weight and lost something like 65 pounds between January and June of 2018. I have to wonder if Kessinger was his motivation to get fit. 
she was Googling his wife in 2017, and he did go to her for advice on how to use MyFitnessPal, and they frequently talked about food choices and clean eating. I would be really surprised if that whole transformation was not Kessinger-inspired. In the end, I think you're right. I think he was addicted to pleasing her and got lost in the fantasy of life with her. So that about wraps up all of everybody else's theories. So now that we've gone through their takes on what they think happened, I want to run through step by step and tell you what I think happened. We know Shanann got home, went inside, and put her bag at the bottom of the stairs, and we know that the dogs alerted to a struggle at the bottom of the stairs. Was Chris waiting for her? I thought about that, and I really don't think he was. In every story he tells, he's in bed when she gets home, and Chris is never consistent, so when he is, I listen. I have to wonder if the struggle detected at the bottom of the stairs was Chris trying to get her body from there to the garage and into the truck. I'm sure he was sweating and stress hormones were balls to the wall at that point. So Shanann goes upstairs and does not take her makeup off. So I think he's right that she didn't take a shower. She also kept her bra on but was found with no pants on and this still makes no sense to me. What pregnant woman sleeps in her bra and why take your pants off Put on a shirt to sleep in, but keep your bra on. The shirt she was found in is not the one that she walked in the house wearing, so she 100% absolutely changed. Maybe she lost the pants when they had sex, if they had sex, and I kind of believe that part of the story. Shanann had been devastated that he wouldn't show her affection and was desperate to save their marriage. Initiating sex and having it come to fruition was probably a positive sign in her mind, having no idea what was about to come. I think the charge in the middle of the night to the credit card that got declined was probably a reoccurring subscription. Shanann being in direct sales herself was known to support other direct sales companies and Monat, I think that's how you pronounce it, is a hair care direct sales company that has a reoccurring subscription option. And I'm thinking maybe that's what happened. I don't think she had time to go shopping in between getting home, having sex, getting into an argument, and being killed. I think they did both fall asleep after sex, and when Chris woke up, it was go time in his mind. I honestly don't believe that there was any argument. I don't think he told Shanann that he didn't love her and that he wanted a separation. I think that's just a part of the story he added in hopes that Kessinger would hear it and know that he did this for her. I think he woke up put on his deodorant, brushed his teeth, and then came up behind Shanann, who was sleeping on her side, facing away from him, and strangled her there, catching her by complete surprise. She probably had no idea what was happening until it was done. He mentions watching her eyes fill with blood. He said she couldn't fight back, and at one point mentions that she was praying as he straddled her and strangled her as she watched him. I don't think Chris saw her eyes until he was wrapping her up, and I think the fact that blood had filled them shocked him so much that he wound up creating a memory for it. I don't think she could fight back because she was exhausted and he strangled her in her sleep. And if you can't breathe, you can't talk, so I highly doubt he heard her praying. 
And I don't think Chris was capable of ever looking Shanann in the eyes while he did this to her. I think he gets off on making himself seem more gruesome and sadistic than he really is, which is honestly really fucking hard to do. And I think he adds shocking details when and where he can to see people's reactions to it. The attention Kessinger gave him made him crave more. And now that he's not getting that, I think he craves the attention he gets from being one of the most well-known murderers of our time. I don't think he expected it. And to him, I think it's a welcomed surprise. He says he knew Shanann was dead when she relieved herself, which makes me question the validity of his claim that he tried smothering Bella and Cece first and failed, only to have them regain consciousness and come into his room while he was wrapping up Shanann in their bedsheet. If he knew that's when his wife was dead, certainly he would have expected the same from his children. He also added in that Bella had bruising around her eyes after regaining consciousness, but the autopsy showed none of that, so it just wasn't true. I don't think he tried killing the girls at the house. I think he made that up because it was a more shocking version of the story than the last one he told, and in his mind, it explained why he put them in the oil tanks instead of burying them, saying he was afraid they'd regain consciousness again if he buried them. I think in his mind, it made him look better than just putting the girls into the tanks because he could. The loft couch is something I wrestle with. They found her cell phone there and between two couch cushions turned off. It still had power on when they turned it back on, so someone had physically turned it off. And I just can't imagine why. Why would Chris create a giant red flag? Anyone who knew Shanann would know something was wrong if she wasn't answering calls or texts, let alone if they were going straight to voicemail. So, was this some kind of divine intervention? Remember, they found her watch under a pillow on that same couch, and Chris genuinely didn't seem to know where that watch had gone, so I think it had fallen off there. What happened on that couch? Sometimes Shanann was known to sleep on that couch because it was more comfortable, but at one point, she says she wasn't going to sleep on the couch anymore when Chris was the one who was giving up on their marriage. So was Chris sleeping on the couch when she got home? Is that where the sex started and why the phone and the watch were left behind? She definitely died in their bed, but something happened on that couch. So at this point, we have a dead and wrapped up Shanann and two daughters who have just woken up from the noise of what's been going on. The girls were extremely light sleepers, which is why Chris parked his truck in front of the house and used the front door to leave each day. The garage door and just a car door closing in the driveway would wake the girls up. We know the girls were alive when Chris left the house. We see their shadows in the video from the neighbor's house. He picks them up one by one and puts them into the back seat of his work truck. And like I mentioned earlier, I'm fairly certain Shanann was not in the floorboard beneath the girl's feet. Instead, I believe she was in the back of his truck. So they take the one hour drive to the oil site where Chris says he dumps Shanann's body onto the ground and then goes back to the truck. Again, if she was in the floorboard, there would be no going back to the truck. He would just be there. But if he had to dump her from the bed of the truck, he would have to walk back around to get back to the girls. I have no idea why he'd leave Shanann on the ground while he killed and disposed of the girls, but I think that's how it went down. That part of the story never really wavered, and he genuinely seems to have some kind of specific rage against Shanann. 
Chris said he put the blankets over the girl's head, covered their nose and mouths, and smothered them while he cut off their airways, and I think that's complete crap. Their necks showed no trauma, and I don't think he got in the truck to have them sit on his lap while he killed them. That would be way too personal for him. I think Chris balled up their blankets, pushed them into their faces like a pillow, and smothered them until they stopped breathing. And I have a theory that may come out of left field, but remember how he mentioned both girls had dinosaur toys that were missing? And when he mentioned what each girl brought with them from the house to the oil field, there was no mention of the dinosaurs. A part of me wonders if he took a dinosaur from each girl and put them into the tank sometime before the murders. Knowing they get clean once a week, he would know whether the crude oil disintegrated the toys or not, and would then have a guesstimate as to whether or not it would do the same thing to the bodies of his two daughters. That could be total bullshit, or I could be onto something. It was worth saying out loud. Anyways, he then goes to bury Shanann and takes the plastic bags off her head and feet and just fucking let them float off into the wind? Why? He also rolls her out of the sheet and into the hole and allegedly just ditches the fucking sheet. Why? Why wouldn't you just keep her how she was and put all of that into the shitty 18-inch hole you dug? It's like his rage made him even more dumb than he already was. Then he literally goes on with his day like nothing is wrong. People call about Shanann and he's all, she's at a play date to one person. And to another one, he's like, oh, she's in one of her moods. He tells another one that they're getting separated and that's why she's upset not talking to anybody. And tells Shanann's friend not to call police. Worst criminal ever. At work, he's talking to co-workers, shitting behind oil tanks, taking these frantic calls, but playing it cool for everyone else around him. He's texting Kessinger throughout the day, even sending her pictures of some flowers he parked next to at the oil field. It's like he's two different people, rage-filled, murderous monster, and cool, calm, and collected boyfriend and co-worker without a care in the world. Kessinger tries deleting all their messages that day, but does a shit job, and we see that they were texting back and forth about things totally unrelated to the missing members of his family. They even talked on the phone that night for over an hour, and let's be real, I highly doubt it was about how worried he was about his missing wife and children. Remember, this is the conversation where she told Chris to pawn his missing wife's wedding rings. She tries going on a deleting rampage of all things Chris on the 13th, which is before anyone officially suspected him of anything. And after he does that interview with Denver 7 and everyone thinks he's shady as fuck, she goes to the police and is like, oh my gosh, I'm dating this guy and I think he's a murderer. He lied to me about everything. I thought he was getting a divorce. I didn't know his wife was pregnant. Can I get a new identity? But... She googled the crap out of Shanann and Chris on a regular basis. She knew they were seemingly happily married on the outside. She had been to their house in the room they shared upstairs. She knew Shanann was pregnant. She knew it was a boy. She knew everything. She just didn't want to go down with him. And I think this is something they had talked about beforehand. I think at some point along the way, Chris told her to roll on him if people started suspecting anything because she straight up threw him under the bus and I mean harder than necessary and he has defended and protected her the entire time. 
The only person he has ever defended is Kessinger. So I generally assume anything he won't talk about involves her. Kind of like when he said he would go to his deathbed with the information on who gave him the oxy. The bottom line is that we know the facts of the case or the evidence, and we know the three stories that Chris has told. We've all put together what we think happened, but we may never truly know, though I doubt he'll stay silent for long. He's given three confessions in one fucking year. I plan on writing Chris and seeing what happens. Yes, you heard me correctly. I got a lot of strange looks trying to get his address. I have actually read the discovery and I know the case like the back of my hand. I know what questions to ask and I know when to call bullshit. I'm going to offer to do a single interview where he answers my questions and I either accept them or tell him why I think he's lying. Maybe he'll take me up on it and maybe he won't and this will be the last episode about him ever. We know he loves attention though, so there's always a chance and I wouldn't feel like I'd done my job if I didn't at least try to get a statement directly from the source himself. As of right now, though, our case against Chris Watts rests. Until he speaks again, and rest assured, I will be all over that like a gluten-free pancake on a nonstick pan. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this breakdown on one of the most fascinating and earth-shattering cases I have ever covered. From now on, we're going to be covering a brand new case each Monday. I may set up a system where you can sign up to get an extra podcast or two a month for those of you who are hooked on the true crime life. So stay tuned for some information on how to get set up with that. And if you love this podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get notifications when new episodes are released. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, drop us a rating or even a review. We love them and they really help. But until next Monday... We out.